This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget if you tap or click subscribe, you can get regular updates into your podcast feed every Thursday. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might remember back in the autumn in episode 34, we marked 160 years since the publication of Charles Darwin's most famous work on the origin of species. And Downhouse in Kent, where he wrote it, has since become a vessel for that story. But this month, we're marking a different anniversary and paying attention to a different vessel in the story of Charles Darwin's life. Joining me to discuss the 200th anniversary of the launch of HMS Beagle, which eventually carried Darwin on a five-year voyage of discovery, are senior properties historian Dr Stephen Brindle and head gardener of Downhouse Anthony O'Rourke. We'll come to Anthony shortly, but if I could start with Stephen first. We know HMS Beagle was the vessel that transported Charles Darwin around the world. Did it have a life before it became forever linked with the world's most famous naturalist? Yes, Charles. The Beagle was one of a large class, about 100 Cherokee-class sloops, which were built through the 1810s and 20s for the Royal Navy. And it was built at the Royal Naval Dockyard at Woolwich and launched in May 1820, just 200 years ago. Because the Navy back then needed small, sort of quick, nimble ships to do all sorts of jobs, not just frigates and battleships. And so there were a hundred of these Cherokee-class sloops, and they did all sorts of things, like sort of coastal duties, anti-smuggling duties, and that kind of thing. But the Beagle, on its construction, was assigned to the Hydrographic Office, which was the Department of the Royal Navy responsible for mapping the oceans. So it was launched in 1820, fitted out, And in the mid-1820s, it made one first long voyage of about five years to South America and Tierra del Fuego, mapping the coasts of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego, some of the most dangerous waters in the world. And during that first voyage, the first captain, who was called Pringle Stokes, got cabin fever or severe depression or something, and he shot himself and died. And a young lieutenant called Charles Fitzroy was promoted to be the captain of the Beagle to replace him. And Captain Fitzroy was a very able seaman and navigator, and with interests in hydrography, that is the mapping of the oceans himself. And it was Fitzroy who was appointed to command the second voyage of the Beagle, its second long surveying voyage, in 1831, which actually lasted from 1831 to 36. So Fitzroy had proved himself when he had to take over halfway through the Beagle's first voyage, and he was sent to do the same kind of thing again for a second surveying voyage in 1831. So how many years had Fitzroy been at sea in terms of experience before Darwin would have boarded? He'd have had a good 10 years' experience at sea. He was from an aristocratic family. He was a relation of the Duke of Grafton, but he didn't have an inheritance. He'd had to make his own way, and he was a highly regarded naval commander by this time. He'd risen from lieutenant to captain and the Beagle was his command. So how did Darwin get involved and get approached to be on this vessel? I'm not quite sure how Fitzroy found his way to Adam Stevens Henslow, but um, Henslow was the professor of botany at Cambridge and while Darwin had been a student 
reading theology at Cambridge, studying to be a clergyman. He'd become very friendly with Adam Henslow, and he'd gone botanising with him. And he was also becoming interested in geology. And Henslow regarded Darwin as you know, a very promising young natural scientist. And Henslow got to hear that Captain Fitzroy wanted a geologist to assist him to be part of his team for the next voyage of the Beagle when it set out in 1831. And Henslow wrote to Darwin saying, I've heard of this position. I think it would be just a thing for you. I think it would be a great opportunity. And it was thanks to his intervention that Darwin was invited to take place as a supernumerary scientist on board the Beagle. The Beagle had a crew of about 80, with nine supernumeraries, including an artist and including Darwin. This would have been Darwin's first long voyage at sea, I would expect. I think it was the first time he'd ever left Britain, yes, and he travelled around the world, and it took five years, so it was a big one. Yeah, I mean, that's... Rather more than a gap year. So he was at sea around five years. What route did the Beagle take, and... How often did Darwin manage to get onto land and, you know, sort of get used to being on land again? Well, the Beagle sailed via Tenerife and the Azores to Bahia in Brazil and then down the coast of South America, putting in several places on the coast of what's now Argentina and the Falkland Islands, rounded the coast of South America, sailed up the coast of Chile, put ashore several plums there, called the Galapagos Islands, and then crossed the Pacific, put in at New Zealand and Australia, round the coast of South Africa, and thus back north up the Atlantic Ocean to Britain. So it was a circumnavigation, but in the course of that, um, Darwin spent quite a lot of time ashore, most of it in South America. Fitzroy's idea was, Fitzroy's intention was, that while he and other members of the ship's crew would be undertaking the hydrography, that is, surveying the ocean beds, surveying the coastline, that Darwin would be put ashore and would study the geology of the adjacent land in relation to it. And Darwin also had Fitzroy's full permission to study natural history and to collect natural history specimens. And he collected a great many barrels full of natural history specimens, that is, both plants, animals and fossils, some of which he sent back, most of which had to be carried back in the hold of the Beagle. And he was writing long letters to his family, but also to Henslow, a sort of long scientific correspondence, and keeping a diary. And all this went into Darwin's account of the voyage, which was published sometime after he returned home. Out of interest, how did those letters make their way back to the UK? Or not UK, but England. It's a good question. I don't know the answer in detail. He was on a naval vessel, and the Royal Navy had as good communications as any organisation in the world by the standards of the time. And the communications would have been based on the Royal Navy's bases around the world. The Royal Navy had a Southern American station, which was normally based at Valparaiso in Chile, and it had a station, I think, at Montevideo, And so occasionally there would have been ships passing and the opportunity to get messages back to a station from where I suppose they would go in bundles back to London. Mm. So I don't know the answer in detail, Charles, but it has to do with the Royal Navy's communication system. 
Yeah, and I suspect they would probably have to drop anchor a few times at various locations and try and pick up supplies as well. Yes, the Beagle had basically to supply itself for long periods because it was operating well away from the Royal Navy's main base routes. That was part of the point. It was operating, surveying in unfamiliar territory. And so they had to forage for food, find food and fresh water wherever they put in. Famously, at the Galapagos Islands, they ate the turtles which were native to them. But Darwin rather unaccountably failed to keep samples of the shells for which he later kicked himself. Yes, I can imagine. And that is one of the key locations in the story of his discovery of the evolution of species by natural selection. Could you tell us what were the key things that he started to sort of discover as he visited the Galapagos Islands? The Galapagos Islands in particular are remarkable because in this group of finches, small birds, and of tortoises, which are present on all the islands, but with slight variations between them. And Darwin realised that these populations, which couldn't have got from one island to the other, across the ocean, must have been related to some ancestral species and must have diverged in their appearance since some date in the past, when they were all living on one common landmass. And he realised that there must have been a larger landmass where the Galapagos now is, and that as land had sunk and the islands had formed in its place, so the finches now marooned on these separate islands had evolved slightly differently. And in particular, he noticed their beaks had evolved in different shapes, and he ultimately came to realise that they had evolved so as to be able to feed from the different kind of flora that there were and the different islands. So Darwin had realised that there was originally a single broad genus of birds that had evolved in different directions, having been separated on these different islands. I mean, there was a similar observation he made when he saw the Falkland Islands fox, which died out in the late 19th century, and he thought it's the largest quadruped that he was aware of living on such a small group of isolated islands. And he thought, how did it get there? It couldn't possibly have swum there. It's 230 miles from the nearest large land. But there is clearly related species of fox and wolf on the South American mainland. And he thought at some point, this species has got here. Has it been there ever since there was a land bridge between the two? and has evolved in relation to its circumstances and the diet available, which for the Falklands Islands fox was mostly seabirds. So Darwin started to realise that when you get populations on isolated islands that couldn't have swum there and couldn't have flown there, that suggests that they've been marooned there by geological change, and that suggests that they've been there for a very long time, and that the differences which they exhibit to related species on the nearest mainland might be explained in terms of that lapse of time since the land they're living on became separated from mainland. That's really fascinating. Um, So he started thinking in terms of geological time and its possible effect on species and on the the opportunity of this over these, these huge spans of time for species to change in relation to their different environments. 
At this point, during the voyage, he was really pushing the envelope in terms of the science of geology and the science of biology. Darwin set out on the Beagle primarily as a geologist. He had the first volume of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, the book which really started modern geology. Lyell realised that the Earth was at the very least hundreds of millions of years old, not thousands of years old, as had been believed previously. And Darwin, in his observations in South America, was primarily looking at geology, and he was understanding how the whole landmass of South America had risen a long way in the past and continued to rise. He was there during an earthquake in 1835, for example, and he noticed how the land had been uplifted when he saw mussel beds, which had been under the water, suddenly they, they were above high tide level. And that, he realised, was an instance of how land masses, enormous land masses, might become uplifted by geological, by seismic processes. And he saw many other examples of that. He saw areas of sea shingle which had become uplifted well above the tidal level. He thought, this used to be underneath the sea. And he started to realise what geological time involved and how radically the Earth could be changed over time by geological processes. Is it fair to say that he left England as a geologist and came back as a bit more of a multi-talented scientist? Yes, he, he came back really as, as a more well-rounded natural scientist. That would certainly be fair. Five years is a very long time. And he was corresponding this time with Henslow, who was reading out his letters in lectures. And by the time Darwin returned, he was already a celebrity in the scientific community. And also because Darwin was such an outstanding natural scientist and his observations were so intelligent and so acute. Mm. So when and where does HMS Beagle arrive back in England? It returned to Falmouth in October 1836, and Darwin never saw the ship again. It did undertake one more voyage, but Charles went back to see his family in Shrewsbury, and then he went to see his, his friends in Cambridge. But the Beagle itself had an afterlife, yeah. So the voyage ends in Falmouth, Darwin disembarks, but how significant was that voyage on HMS Beagle in the development of Darwin's theory of natural selection? The voyage on the Beagle had turned Darwin from being an intelligent student with an informed interest in geology into being a well-rounded natural scientist with much broader experience in analysing flora and fauna. And he'd been thinking about the relationships of species to each other and their relationships to their environment. And within a few months of the end of the voyage, in 1837, he was already speculating about the possibility that one species does change into another which was a very radical idea at the time. But it took him a very long time, it was another 17 years after this, before he published The Origin of Species. But there's no doubt that the voyage of the Beagle was his real education as a scientist, and it was of, of crucial importance in Darwin's development as a, as a scientist, as a man. We know Charles Darwin as having lived at Down House in Kent, which is an English heritage location, mm. but he didn't go there initially, did he? I believe he went back to London after disembarking and finishing this voyage. Yes, he moved to London. He married his cousin Emma Wedgwood. They settled in Bloomsbury. 
they didn't really like London. They wanted a place in the country. They were sort of quiet people. They weren't sort of the social urban kind of people. And they moved to Down in September 1842. How long then did it take from that point where he arrives at Down to working on his ideas of theory of evolution? You mentioned about 18 years, was it? Darwin published um, On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection in November 1859. So it was another 17 years till he published his famous book. Um, But the observations he'd made while on the voyage of the Beagle and his experiences then were at the foundation of that scientific work which led to the publication of Origin. And I think we'll Downhouse also played a part in the ruminating, the sort of cogitating, the turning ideas over and over in his head and doing experiments at his new home that helped develop these theories further. Yes, absolutely. Down was his his laboratory as well as his home. Well, let's bring in Anthony, our head gardener of Downhouse, and we'll bring him into the conversation. So thank you, Anthony, for uh, waiting so patiently on the line there. How important was Downhouse to Charles's theory of evolution by natural selection? What role did it play? Well, here at Downhouse, we like to celebrate Charles Darwin's epic voyage of the Beagle because it led directly to his ideas about evolution. But it wasn't really until coming to Downhouse with his wife and where ultimately they would raise their children that he rigorously tested that idea. So he formulated his ideas on this epic voyage when he travelled around the world for five years, but this was his testbed. So it didn't matter whether he was using rooms in the house itself, or areas on the lawn, or the, uh, the orchard, or his kitchen garden, or for that matter, the landscape beyond. He used this landscape in order to test those theories, and he rigorously tested those ideas, and so... It became, if you like, his living landscape laboratory. And unlike some scientists that may have been famous for developing one great idea and then sort of petering off, far from it with Charles Darwin, he was really, really prolific. And he worked tirelessly, bouts of ill health permitting, to support these ideas. And even up until his death, he was working on many, many projects. And in fact, the last publication that he made, major book uh, on the subject of earthworms, was published only a year before his death. As you mentioned there, that the entire place was a living laboratory. Could you give us some highlights of the key experiments that he did in the garden and and even in the house? Well, all I can say is, is his wife, Emma, must have been a very patient lady because he spent the early years examining cirripedia or barnacles and he would spend the first 10 years of his life examining those and coming up with a, a whole scientific study on the whole group of barnacles. And then he moved on to pigeon breeding and looking at the effects of crossing different varieties of pigeons together because in order for his ideas about natural selection to work, he had to understand artificial selection as well. And so poor Emma Darwin had to put up with boiling carcasses of pigeons in the house and here and there various bits of paraphernalia belonging to Charles. 
And then out in the garden, the garden was no exception. He would conduct many, many experiments, principally on plants, because plants were easier to work with animals. They were easier to get hold of, and he didn't have all of the constraints associated. So, for example, one experiment that he's very, very famous for is his weed experiment, which is where he looked at weed mortality. So he cleared a plot of land, and he recorded the different weeds that grew over a period of several months. And he also recorded the mortality or the the death rate. And of all of the germination events over that period, that growing season, approximately three quarters of them died and didn't get to set seed. And so this played into his ideas of evolution by means of natural selection, because in order for natural selection to work, it requires lots of individuals being born and, of course, a high mortality. But within that sphere of mortality, you've got variation and these are key to his ideas. How are some of these experiments replicated at Down House today for visitors? Well, one of my favourites is the heterostyle experiment, which is an experiment which looks at the different forms of flowers. And it's particularly interesting to me because it sort of speaks volumes about the attitudes at the time, because polite Victorian society, some of them were saying that, you know, this idea of God being replaced by a natural process was viewed with some disdain. And some people suggested to him, in the case of his heterostyle experiment, they said to him, primroses could give rise to cowslips, and cowslips could give rise to primroses in a single generation. So if that's the case, where does that leave your natural selection? And so he got his children involved. So they collected primroses and cowslips from around the hedgerows near the garden. And then they transplanted them into the kitchen garden. And what he found was not only was it not the case that they couldn't spontaneously change into different species, but what he noticed was that they had different forms of flowers. And he was the first person to note dimorphism in flowers. And at first he thought that the flowers were evolving to become either male or female. And so if that was the case, he would expect the male flowers to be less fertile than the female. But after experimentation, he judged this not to be the case. And then later he realised after extensive experimentation that it was an adaptation to ensure outcrossing within the species. And this is another key component of natural selection. It requires outcrossing within a species because without outcrossing, you don't have that all-important variability. And this experiment is is shown today. At the moment, it's looking absolutely glorious. It's in full flower, just outside his greenhouse where he would have had it. And it's a real robust example of everything that Charles Darwin was about. And what is outcrossing exactly? Outcrossing is where you, from a species point of view, it's where you reproduce with individuals which aren't closely related to you. So, for example, it was known in the Victorian period, if you were to marry your cousin, for instance, it was considered, actually, it might not be the best thing from a reproduction point of view. And this is absolutely the case, and it's it's certainly the case throughout the natural world, that in order for that diversity and that strength to be there in the offspring, then you have to cross with members of your own species which are quite distinct genetically from you. As different from you as possible. That's correct, yes. And these are key components for the theory of natural selection to work. And the gardens today, we visited on the podcast back in episode 34, very large collection of land. How does the garden look today compared to during Darwin's time? I would go as far to say you would be hard pressed to notice a huge amount of difference. We pride ourselves in reinstating the plantings 
and the landscape as it was according to the historic photographs that we have from the period. It would have been different in terms of certain trees wouldn't be as mature as they are today, but in terms of the, the borders and the meadows, it's very, very similar to how it would have looked. And not only that, where we've lost certain species, for example, we've lost certain orchids, we've been able to look at related orchids which are coming back into the meadow and using those examples we can then say well if these related orchids are coming back in we can then introduce these orchids that have been lost as well and so it's a great privilege to not only maintain the landscape as it is now but also to restore those components of the landscape back to how they would have been and how Charles Darwin himself would have seen them. So what features or areas of the garden are particularly significant to Darwin's story as you're visiting? I think key to the Darwin story is the glass house and it's a sort of a honeypot if you like when you go into the gardens. You go into the walled garden and just before you get to the kitchen garden is the, the beautiful glass house which has been restored beautifully by English Heritage and it contains his diverse plant collections. And so we've reinstated those plant collections that Darwin would have had based on his letters and his writings and all of the correspondence and, of course, his major publications. And so you can see all of the experiments that he would have been carrying out. For example, you can see the, the plants Drosera, which were the, the insectivorous plants, which he first found growing in a bog locally and carried out numerous tests on them to really document their insectivorous nature. And he was the first person to successfully document that plants could be what we now today call carnivorous. And also in the glass house, we can't talk about Charles Darwin without talking about the pollination of orchids. And there are an amazing collection of orchids in there. And at the moment we have flowering the Darwin orchid and Graecum sesquipedale, or its common name is either the Darwin orchid or the rocket orchid. And that's an interesting story because at the time, flower specimens were sent to Darwin and they said to him, what do you think could be responsible for producing this flower? Because the Angraecum flower has a great big waxy white flower and a very long spur, uh, about 30 centimetres long. And these spurs are normally associated with the production of nectar to attract a pollinator. And so Darwin, with the aid of his contemporary Alfred Russell Wallace, suggested that it was a, a species of hawk moth that was growing nearby on mainland Africa. Of course, this, this orchid, which he was experimenting, was only occurring in Madagascar. So they suggested it was a subspecies of this hawk moth with a very, very long tongue, which could reach 30 centimetres down into the flower. And some people at the time sort of scoffed at this idea, but at the time as well, to be fair, he was gaining a reputation as being sort of a celebrity scientist, if you like, at that time. And some people were accepting what he said. But it wasn't until 20 years after his death that a moth was discovered in Madagascar and it had this amazing 30 centimetre long tongue. And so they called it Xanthopan morganii, which was the name of the moth on mainland Africa. But because Darwin and Wallace had predicted it, they called it subspecies predictor because its, its existence had been predicted long before it was ever seen. That's remarkable. So it had this long, I think they call it a proboscis, don't they? That's correct, yes, a proboscis, which could reach right down into the bottom of the flowers. And in fact, speed forward another 100 years to about, I think it was a, uh, 2006 or something, somebody managed to capture that on film for the first time. And so if you go onto YouTube, you can actually see this happening. It's quite a remarkable thing to see. <laughs> so if you were summing that up, what appeared to be a wild theory 
eventually was a wild species. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and an extraordinary species and one that was quite rightly predicted and just another credit to Charles Darwin's genius. What other projects are your team currently working on then? The first one I'm going to talk about is a project to reinstate some of those lost orchids. Charles Darwin described a particular orchid. He was the first person to describe the green-winged orchid. And it kind of perplexed him, really. This was an orchid which grew here locally at Down. And it was a beautiful showy orchid called Anacamptis morio, or as he called it, Orchis morio. And it grew in huge numbers here, in his own words. And sadly, it has been lost from the landscape. Um, it's had a 75% decline across its range since the end of the Second World War, which sadly mirrors many wildflowers in this country. And what we did was we looked at the meadow as it is today and looked at the orchids that are coming back after several decades of traditional grassland management. And we saw related orchids coming back into the meadow. And so we thought, this is perhaps the best time to try and reintroduce this orchid because the fungi which this orchid relies on may be present. And so we had a very generous gift in a will from a lovely lady who was an orchid expert. And we thought, what better way to celebrate this lady's life than to allow it to fund this important work. And so we planted the screen-winged orchid into the meadow using micropropagated plants and they have come up really, really well and they're going to flower for the first time this year. And so hopefully this new cycle of renewal will begin. And so not only is it a great legacy for this lovely lady, but also if we can get that established, that would be a great boost for this orchid because it's locally extinct sadly and the other project that i'm really excited about this year is that we are recreating a part of the garden which emma darwin was primarily responsible for and this was the plantings on the mound now the garden is essentially flat or gently sloping and the limited amount of landscaping that you can see in the gardens is because of spoil that was taken from the road the road that runs along the front of the property now, the Darwins were very private people, so they didn't really want people looking into their garden. So they lowered the height of the road by two feet, and then they built a six-foot wall so that people couldn't see over it. Mm. Um, because if you could imagine, Charles Darwin was quite a celebrity of the day, and they just didn't want people peering in over the wall and, and ruining their privacy. So they lowered this road, they built this really high wall, and then they used that spoil to create this mound. And on the mound, they planted evergreens, and they planted rhododendrons of the time and azaleas and and these were really the plants that Emma Darwin loved she loved her azaleas and she loved her particularly the deciduous azaleas which are very very fragrant and so we're removing some of the more lackluster planting and we're adding some of the really sort of hardy robust rhododendrons that were available to the Darwins at the time and also, not only that, we're, we're in collaboration with other gardens that have some of the original source material, would you believe, of the Darwin's rhododendrons. So we can go to certain gardens and we can say, can we have cuttings from these plants? Because we know that this was the garden which supplied the Darwin's with these rhododendrons. And so over time, we'll start to reinstate those historic plantings as well. So they will really accurately reflect what the garden really was like. That's a really exciting thing for us to be able to do here. Yeah, those are really nice uh, legacies, as you, as you say, for both the lady who donated through her will. And it's also a nice way to pay tribute to the Darwins themselves in this sort of idea of renewal, rebirth, repropagation of species. I think that's for that reason, you're sort of always immortal, aren't you? 
Yeah, it's a great responsibility to be able to do this. And, you know, when one thinks about it, it can be a little bit daunting at times. But also, it's an exceptional privilege to be able to say we are maintaining this legacy and developing this legacy for generations to come. And that makes us very, very happy. Moving away from the vessel of Downhouse being a sort of ideas factory for Charles Darwin and his theories on evolution, we'll go back and chat briefly about the HMS Beagle again, Stephen. We covered Darwin's journey on the Beagle, but what happened to the ship after Darwin disembarked? Did it go on any further voyages? The Beagle made one further long surveying voyage to Australia, where it surveyed quite large parts of the coast of Australia and Tasmania and it came back to England, and in 1845 it was refitted as a Coast Guard watch vessel, and it was permanently moored in the River Roach, that's on the coast of Essex. The Roach is a tributary of the River Crouch, and the Essex coastline has these very long inlets, and there was an endemic problem with smuggling there. So the Coast Guard service had a number of vessels which were permanently moored, so coast guards could live there and try and monitor smuggling. So that's what happened to the Beagle. In 1845, it was permanently moored in the estuary of the River Roach. That's near Burnham-on-Crouch in Essex. And eventually it's sold, I understand. When was that? Yeah, it had about 25 years' life in this new use. It would have had coast guards actually living on board it with their families, until probably till the hull was leaky and it was too old to be repaired and wasn't really seaworthy anymore. And in 1870, it was sold to Messrs Murray and Trainer. This probably means two local farmers, actually called Murray and Rayner, and sold for its materials. Now, it's not absolutely clear what happened to it then, but it seems likely that they dismantled most of the timbers and used them as building material, but it's quite likely that the lower part of the hull survived and just sank in the River Roach where it was. Right, that's really interesting. So potentially there are parts of HMS Beagle which became buildings and perhaps people's houses in the nearby area. Yeah, a few years ago a team led by Dr Robert Prescott of St Andrews University carried out a sort of geophysical survey on the channel bed and they found the outline, that is in the silt, um, of what seemed likely to be the keel and lower hull timbers. So although they've not been excavated, it's quite likely the keel and lower hull of the Beagle are still there on the bed of the River Roach, where it was sort of scuttled after most of it had been dismantled, I suppose, by Mr Murray and Mr Rayner. That's fascinating. Um, and it, and it is thought that some of the timbers are still there in a couple of buildings, you know, I think there's a boathouse which may have timbers of the Beagle in it. Is that the end of the project? Do you think there will be further research or perhaps even an attempt to raise the, the keel and the hull together? I'm not aware that anyone has tried to do that, but there is a full-scale replica of the Beagle which was built by a naval museum in Chile about 10 years ago. So if you wanted to see what the Beagle looked like, if you Google it, you will find pictures of the replica HMS Beagle built by Naval Museum in Chile about 10 years ago. Looking back on the history of the Beagle on its own as a vessel and its famous captain and its very famous natural scientist, how would you sort of reflect on that ship's career if it could talk? 
it's uh, an expression of an age when the Royal Navy was a great force, not only in politics and in projecting British political power around the world, but in policing the nations and making the oceans safe from piracy and safe for trade. And it was an era when the anti-slavery squadrons of the Royal Navy were starting to suppress the slave trade around the globe and an era when the Navy was mapping coastlines and mapping the oceans as the Beagle did. Beagle wasn't alone, there were many surveying vessels sent out to do this kind of thing. And so one could say that it represents an aspect of our naval history that we can be very proud of as the Royal Navy as a really positive constructing force undertaking scientific research, hydrographic research, mapping the oceans, not just for itself but ultimately in the interest of all mankind. And a vessel for evolutionary theory, which... And, and the unexpected consequence, as you say, was that it was the key stage in the development of one of the greatest natural scientists in all history, whose theory of evolution is now a foundational part of the natural sciences. So, yes, the Beagle certainly has a major place in history, even if it has this rather obscure resting place. But it's kind of nice to know that, that some, something of it is still left there at the bottom of the River Roach. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the story of Down House, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we go behind the walls to discover life at English castles. One of the more interesting things to me researching this is that the numbers of people living in these castles are probably fewer than we might think. Thanks for listening. See you next time.